welcome to Notes from Nash. Today's guest is Dr. Custer Lee Ann. Dr. Custer Lee Ann is a newly arriving art and architecture professor here at Vanderbilt University. Her undergraduate education was completed at Harvard and her PhD was completed at the University of Pennsylvania. After completing her undergraduate degree, Dr. Custer moved to New York City to work at the Guggenheim Museum. Dr. Custer's academic and research interests lie in how images mediate ideas of place and space in order to ask whose experiences do they fortify and whose do they emit. Dr. Custer's work has been supported by the Smithsonian, the Terra Foundation for American Art, the Center for Advanced Study in the Visual Arts, the New York Public Library, and many more. Dr. Custer's research currently is interested in the utilization, the commoditization, and interpretation of air in urban New York City from 1880 to 1940. Here's my conversation with Dr. Custer Leanne. What is architecture? That is a huge question. Indeed. <laughs> very difficult to answer, um, but a very fair question. Uh, and one, you know, that's that's worth asking. Um, so, you know, I don't have a perfect answer. Architecture is a wildly capacious category, but I will give it a shot for you. So I guess on a basic level, although it's never really that simple, right? But architecture could be considered the arrangement of forms in space, something that's beholden to the natural laws of physics and has some characteristic of artistic choice. Now, um, we might think about the idea of choice manifesting something like an aesthetics or beauty, um, something that conveys meaning to its users. But at the same time, I guess I would stress that I think the meaning that architecture can convey to its users is just incredibly deeply culturally dependent. And um, that idea of artistic choice is really wide ranging. And I think when conversations about architecture can be their most productive, they take a really broad uh, definition you know, of, of what that artistic choice is and, and what that can mean um, and be and do in the world. One of my favorite questions to ask architects or arch people studying architecture is, is architecture more of a math or an art? What would you say? Um, why do you like to ask that question? Well, part of it is to me, it's like architecture is kind of weird to me. It's like, ooh, here's like these very strict mathematical principles that we can apply in the real world to create real things that is very much founded in, in uh, engineering. But then there's also this ornamentation quality to it. Mm -hmm. There's, there's, you know, there's figures, there's symbols, there's yeah, ornamentation, there's arches. You can beautify something that is strictly mathematical. So it's, it's both things and to find both things in one field kind of intersecting and not really caring that these two things typically we see as completely opposites is kind of satisfying to me. It, it is quite a beautiful profession. I, I'm not an architect, but, um, I did take the initial qualifying classes to apply to architecture school, um, which I, I decided not to, not to go to um, when I was uh, considering what to do for graduate school. I ended up going the more historical route, right. but I passed that calculus class um, <laughs> and, I, and I knew I that it was it. like deeply, deeply, right, a part, a part of the profession. Um, I don't know if I have a great answer for you. I, I just think that the, it does go hand in hand in architecture, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, there is a mathematics to it, right? The buildings have to stand up. Although when I was in um, studio architecture classes, there, there was less of an emphasis on how things would stand up. I remember uh, one of my instructors told me, okay, this is granted, this is like an introductory right. um, studio architecture class, just said that, you know, if the model stands up, that's good enough. <laughs> and just right. said that sometimes duct tape has to be involved. <laughs> so I don't know how the engineers would, would feel I, about that. Funny but. enough, my, uh, my, the neighbor, my neighbor, Jamie, uh, he often uses that phrase duct tape and, <laughs> and he's an engineering major. So yeah, yeah, I'll say, and you know, like historically, um, really well-known architects like Le Corbusier, you know, thought that engineering could also count as architecture. 
um, but that did it didn't always necessarily count. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know that's a that's a perspective that one could argue for. I think that there is artistic choice in almost everything mm-hmm. that exists. I think it's almost impossible to distill that out of a structure. So in my practice as an art and architectural historian and in the classes that I teach, I, you know, I, I teach with a really broad holistic understanding and I often use the term built environment mm-hmm. instead of architecture just to make it really clear um, that I take a really wide ranging stance on that. And I think you know, architecture has historically had many gatekeepers, uh, right, to what counts as architecture. And historically, that definition has left out um, a lot of making um, by groups of folks who were not necessarily um, in power, not necessarily um, white, they were not necessarily elite. And so um, I think that what what counts as architecture is changing. And I think that, uh, you know, for the better, pulling apart um, that definition of what architecture can be uh, allows for a more inclusive sort of panoply of, of um, stuck, um, sorry, structures to study. What would, uh, can you unpack the idea of something being a built environment rather than architecture? Mm, yes. Well, so I think architecture is part of the built environment. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I think that built environments can include, um, gosh, things like streetscapes, um, you know, benches, the space between buildings, uh, things that are constructed and things that are also intentionally left unconstructed. Uh, so it's sort of um, environments where uh, I want to say almost like it's everything yeah. um, that we move through in space. Uh, but, but, I, but I think also thinking about the cultural meanings of that, right, mm-hmm. um, and the ways that layers of history impact environments around us um, constitutes what I think uh, the, the meaning of a built environment is. Is it fair to say that you're including negative space inside the picture of a built environment? When we're because particularly when we're thinking about architecture, we're just thinking about one building, and we mm-hmm. kind of forget mm-hmm. what's around it—the mm-hmm. context, the background, the foreground, et cetera. Absolutely. So this is something I think a lot about in my work. Kind of leads naturally into um, me talking about my work, which I can Perfect. I can yeah. do now, or <laughs> we can hold for later. But but yeah, absolutely. And I think thinking about the negative spaces between buildings is. Um, a, a tactic that I, I think is inspired by my reading and my understanding of city planning, right? Mm-hmm. Because city planners are really interested in the interdependencies uh, between buildings um, and other forms of constructed space, you know, whether maybe it's a park, something like that. Right. Um, not a building, but highly designed, for instance. Mm-hmm. So I, my research sort of brings together um, architecture and urbanism and then visual representations of those two things. So it sort of has three prongs, art, architecture, and urbanism. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely am thinking about negative space uh, in that. Yeah, so I, I think that would be that would be very fair to say. And I think, you know, historically, representations of architecture do tend to just, if we think about images and how they, how they um, communicate what a building is or what architecture is, they often just focus on uh, the main building. And I think the conventions of drawing also in, in architectural um, schools often lend themselves to just focusing on the one building. And granted, that's, that's a tall order in and of itself, right, to design right. buildings. Like, I'm not an architect. I'm not <laughs> trying to say it's easy. Um, but, I, but I think those relationships between buildings and spaces are something that, that's interesting, too, that, that sometimes the historical conventions of drawing hadn't necessarily enabled, which is part of why I turned to artistic, like other forms of art, yeah, like painting and, mm-hmm. and how those represent the city, too. Um, yeah, yeah. Those are, but I, but I, they're also, just to flag, like there are movements of, of architecture throughout the 20th century as well that where architects are quite focused on in between spaces so it's mm. you know i'm i'm generalizing in order to draw out right main points here yeah for the sake of conversation now i think this is a nice leeway into your work so yeah, yeah. what does your dissertation quote urban voids picturing light air and open space in new york 1890 to 1935 end quote say yeah so my dissertation which is now my book project Nice. Uh, that I'm working on here at Vanderbilt, uh, focuses on open air spaces of the city. So it takes the city kind of as its core and what the problem of open space means in a city. Um, so I'll just, I'll unpack that a little bit further. So yes. essentially in 
New York City at the turn of the 20th century, it was the skyscraper era, right? Um, buildings were go- going taller than ever before. Um, and, and it was one of the, the most dense places um, in the world. It was reported that one of the neighborhoods in New York, the Lower East Side, was the densest place on earth at the time. And oh. um, New York had successively the most... Um, Sorry, successively the tallest buildings in the world, um, from the Woolworth Building uh, to the Chrysler Building to the Empire State Building in this era. So really, really dense. And often histories of New York will track that um, density and kind of extreme height as a characteristic of the city. So I'm interested in almost the opposite Hmm. of that. So the city essentially came to frame open spaces in a new way because of its density. So... In this moment in New York, I'm interested in how space was not no longer taken for granted in a way that it that it would be there and that it would be open and and provide everything that open air entails. And what I mean by that is that open air allows for sunlight, fresh air, right, ventilation, to a certain extent, quiet, to a certain extent, um, privacy. And so, open spaces became privileged zones of the city and access to them, um, you know, uh, was not always equal amongst different communities in New York. So I'm interested in tracing a history of open air space in New York as kind of a complement, a spatial complement to the skyscraper, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then thinking about how that impacted American art uh, at a time when the city really emerged as a major subject um, for artists. There's so, so I'll, much I'll pause there, but yeah. I could really, I could go deeper. So just let So me. just to recap, yeah. New York City or New York, or is it particularly New York City? I do focus on New York City. Okay. Yeah. New York City, um, <clears throat> very dense, packed. People are packed like sardines. Therefore, open spaces become more scarce, and that that's what creates its value. Is that exactly. fair to say? Okay. Exactly. And, and then I guess now I'm interested in how that impacted American art. Or you, or you can talk about something else tangentially to that, yeah. but whatever the next step in this development is, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so one thing I'll just say is that open air spaces essentially became commodified when we hit 1961 hmm. in New York. Um, so at that point, zoning laws change to allow for the buying and selling of air rights. So the literal spaces above buildings could be bought and sold wow. um, as of 1961 in New York. Um, so I'm actually looking at the almost the prehistory of that. Like, how do we get there? And I'm interested in how air sort of evades a capitalistic system like that, right? Like we can, we can commodify space, but air itself is actually always moving through certain spaces, right? And it kind of um, resists or push, pushes back against this, uh, idea that space can always can always be like owned, right, and possessed in some way. And so I think you know to that extent, um, my project is hopefully pushing back against this idea um, that space was always taken for granted in an American settler colonial paradigm, or like assumed to be quote unquote empty. A proposition that undergirded you know U.S. expansionism, for instance. Yeah. Um, so just to give you a sense of like a kind of the ideology and the work that like I hope that this question um, that I'm bringing to the project of what, you know, what about these um, open spaces? And I'm, I'm careful actually to sometimes I use the, the, um, the term voids, but I, I actually mean it uh, like in air quotes, like they appear to be empty, but they aren't actually right because mm-hmm. they carry value um, in this time, especially like in New York where it's very dense as we kind of discussed. And so I'm interested in how these spaces, like the the city almost makes them newly visible as we talked about, because they're being framed in new ways by buildings. They actually, they somehow become, instead of the negative spaces, they almost become like the positive space or like the figure. If you look down like a really dense street, the sky almost takes on its own shape, right? As it's framed by the buildings. So I'm interested in how artists became interested in that. Hmm. Uh, So my project sets up this, um, uh, history through my through my research where I show that these spaces almost became objectified in this period, if you will. So they're not they're not objects. Right. You can't like touch them. But I'm using that as a conceptual frame to say like they became quantified or objectified in this period. Um, and in that way, they become almost things that artists are interested in in this time. And 
I think this is super interesting because in this moment, uh, in the history of modern art, foreground and background are kind of collapsing. Mm. Artists are playing with um, abstracted forms that the city um, kind of that the city prompts them to see. Um, there's a lot of abstraction, um, a move towards abstraction, and so these spaces kind of allow artists to communicate in their paintings a thing, if you will, a thing in air quotes, that is both culturally specific, but also abstract at the same time. It's abstract because it's like nothingness. It's like the shape of the sky. But what I'm actually trying to study and argue is that these shapes were quite culturally conditioned and they were culturally conditioned by histories of like housing, um, zoning, public health, uh, those are histories in which actors like civic leaders and other kinds of progressive era reformers were, those were, those were um, realms of thought in which they were moving to enact policies that would limit the growth of the city to allow for more open air space. So we've got the cultural specificity on the one hand, right. and we've got the fact that these forms are actually kind of abstract right. and in their in their nothingness, mm -hmm. if you will. And so when, when painters like Georgia O'Keeffe and Aaron Douglas and John Sloan, who are some of the, the artists I focus on, when they picture these spaces, um, they're, they're using them as ways to play with uh, foreground and background, figuring ground um, in their art. So I'm, I'm very interested in how uh, this is sort of an overlooked element of the city um, that art historians haven't uncovered yet. Mm. I want to uh, have a lot of questions, but my first question is, uh, that was very interesting, the the anecdote you told you mentioned about in 61, when air does become commoditized. You mentioned how space moving upwards, you have, to, you have to essentially buy it. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Yeah, so there's there are two major zoning laws in the 20th century New York City history. Um, the first one is a 1916 zoning law, and I, I focus on that um, in my book. And it uh, it set a limit for what's called the building envelope, so the extent to which um, a building could like cover its lot uh, was controlled by this law, and it had to do with the width of the street hmm. um, that a building was on. And it required a building to step back or or become set back from essentially like let's call it like the street wall like if you could imagine where a, where the sidewalk meets a building and an imaginary line extending directly upward from that mm -hmm. um there was a formula getting back to architecture mm -hmm. and math by the way um <laughs> depending on the width of the street that was like an imaginary line that controlled how far a building ah. could be um could be extended upward and this this was like an imaginary diagonal line that was based on a, a formula. But a building would have to essentially be under this formulaic line such mm -hmm. that it would like step back from the street to allow for more light and air mm -hmm. to reach the streets below. So it, it ended up making buildings look like they had almost like a ziggurat type huh. shape on the side, right? Like these sort yeah. of like step backs that we think of as a skyscraper, like right. na almost narrows as it goes up is a direct result of the zoning law in 1916. So essentially the voids of the city were shaped by the zoning law when we're talking about really dense districts of skyscrapers, it's not mm. the entire city, um, but in a place like Midtown, um, Midtown Manhattan or like uh, lower, lower Manhattan, downtown. So that was 1916. Mm. Confusingly, they're like the same. <laughs> they're just reverse. Uh, yeah. So then in 61, um, the zoning laws are changed and augmented um, and there's a, there's a couple different ways in which they change, but the, the way that um, one of the ways that I'm I'm interested in in how they change, and it's sort of like an epilogue in my book, um, is how is the how the floor area ratio comes into play. So floor area ratio or FAR has to do with the amount of space that could be stacked on a given lot. So instead of saying um, going back to the earlier zoning law um, that just said okay, if you go up 16 stories, your building has to s has to 
set back into its lot like a certain number of feet before it can go up again, Mm -hmm. resulting in this sort of like wedding cake appearance. Um, Floor area ratio was more flexible. It said, okay, you get this amount of space um, to build on this lot, and it could be configured in a variety of different ways. Say you have a historic church. Mm -hmm. Okay, it doesn't need to go any higher. This has to do with height limits in the city. Um, perhaps it does not want to build higher, uh, but there's a building right next door that's been bought and a developer wants to put a building on it that, you know, goes up quite high. Um, but the amount of floor area that it can build and stack on this lot will only take it to a certain height. It can buy the air rights from the historic, like, let's say it's a church right next door. That's not using its height and attach it to its own building. So... (laughs) The first law that I was telling you about in, 19, really in 1916, uh-huh. it didn't have a f- cap on right. height, um, but it said that only a certain percentage of the lot could be built as a tower that could go as high as the developer wanted. Okay, so I think it was like 35% of the lot. Um, but that limit did not exist in the later law. Buildings could go up, 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 but they, the way that they did that in the second half of the 20th century was to, uh, to buy air rights from neighboring properties. So there was a ceiling for sixteen, right? Like a like a, um, like a only for uh, for a certain percentage of the lot, and then they let a tower go as tall as could possibly be built. So, like if you think about the Empire State Building, mm-hmm. um, that tower part of it, it, the base is bigger than the tower. If you're looking at yeah, the whole building, right. and the tower part is, I don't quote me on, I can't quite. I think it's like thirty five percent of the lot mm-hmm. um, could be a tower as as tall as could be built at that time. But the rest of the lot was was limited. And how high it could be built. And that's why it kind of like sets back towards. Oh, okay. That is very, I I can't express to you how intrigued, like this strange and bizarre, but yet intriguing all this is. (laughs) Especially, I mean, it really is commoditizing air. It's not a metaphor. It's truly buying air rights, which is strange. Um, Yeah. And so there are skyscrapers that take that form that aren't in New York. mm. It actually created this kind of iconic silhouette of a skyscraper um that is is used in cities that didn't have you know that don't have the need for really such a such a stringent law um because they're not quite as dense um but cities built skyscrapers in that shape which just is a testament to how art is sometimes directly tied to politics and public policy. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you mentioned how uh, these voids, right, they inspired American art. Mm-hmm. And in, in that, and those American artists who were looking at these voids and creating art, they were uh, both creating an abstraction. Yeah. But those abstractions were culturally relevant in yes, some exactly. way. And yes, exactly. And I was just curious as to how those voids mm-hmm. helped create art that was culturally relevant. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think it would be something like, um, you know, if we have an image of uh, if we have like a painting by Georgia O'Keeffe of a of a skyscraper. um, I think it would be saying, you know, that the the shape of the sky, actually, which she called a sky shape. She was very interested in that is actually not an accident, but it's a result of the 1916 zoning law. Right. For instance, Um, that I just shared with you. And then more than that, I, my, my work thinks about how artists who were working in the city around the same time and coming from different subject positions, um, how they experienced open space in the city uh, in their own right. So um, I looked, for instance, at Georgia O'Keeffe's papers that are in the Beinecke Library at Yale. Um, when I was doing my doctoral work, I got a grant to spend a month there and, wow. <laughs> and read Georgia O'Keeffe's letters, which was um, pretty amazing. And so I looked at how she described her experience of the city space. So she actually lived in a skyscraper herself and painted from there. Uh And so she had a lot of open space around her skyscraper, actually, as a direct result of the 1916 zoning law. She was working in in relatively close to Midtown um, Manhattan in a skyscraper building called the Shelton. And so I'm thinking about how she she worked from uh, the 30th floor. Um, I think she was working and living higher in terms of like an, a man-made structure than any artist had at the time, except for her husband, Alfred Stieglitz, who's a photographer who was also living there <laughs> with her. Uh, but they were very, very high up for the time. And I'm interested in how, like, as you rise higher in a building in the city in this time period, you necessarily have more space mm-hmm. around you because of the 1916 zoning law and the way the buildings had to like step back from the street. 
So she's kind of capturing this quiet, like she talks about the city being quiet, mm -hmm. which is very unusual, right? Yeah. She has a very uh, particular, um, we might say privileged experience of the city, right? And it was a quiet experience. It's like uh, a, a sunny experience, which is um, at times rare in the city, which is known for like it's dark, dark and cramped. Um, is that because of the buildings themselves? Creating a dark environment at the yes, bottom, but yeah. a light. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's and, interesting. and she also, she happened to be like very high up. Mm -hmm. So she, uh, you know, has some, some brilliant paintings of, of, um, the sun kind of you know, coming up over Queens, mm -hmm. her view to the East. And so I, I hope this answering your question is just to say that, like, I think about how these spaces were relevant in the lives of the painters and we can never really know, right? We right. can never truly know history. Sure. Uh, but some using archival evidence to think about how these spaces sort of um, formed the urban experience of these painters. Um, I think about how they formed urban experience for residents in the city more broadly, which of course like includes the painter, but goes beyond the painter that I'm studying in a given case study. Um, and then how they were like artifacts of, of this time period, if you will. Um, regarding like how they were shaped. It's almost like sculpt, like it's like sculpting, like against the right. city in a way through policy. That is really interesting that your experience can vary based on where you are in a, in a, in a skyscraper. I mean, I, you don't really think of that, but when you really get down to it, yeah, I mean, that is, I've personally never been to New York City, but I can only imagine. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, maybe I'll be able to take a class someday. That would be really fun. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, and I think the other, you know, the other major uh, factor and why I, I think about artists from different subject positions is that one's identity can really can really um, have an impact on their experience of space, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, by and large, um, white uh, white communities in the city had greater access to fresh air and sunlight uh, than communities of color did, and I think about this. Um, a lot uh, across my chapters. Um, in particular, my, my chapter on John Sloan talks about, um, he was a white male artist painting. Um, he was painting in tenement environments. Um, so these were buildings that were uh, constructed for mul multiple working class families. Um, and they were typically populated um, with immigrant communities um, and also black communities. And it's very, clear when you study the history of these types of spaces um, that access to fresh air, sunlight um, was racialized. Like that was a, a privileged experience. Um, and, you know, African-American communities did not have as many opportunities um, for where they could live. In uh, New York, they were charged higher rents sure. um, than white New Yorkers. And so as a result, like the conditions became more crowded for them in many cases. I can imagine what the physiological and psychological mm -hmm. effects could mm -hmm. be. I mean, lack of vitamin D3 and Absolutely. then its effects on mental health and so yeah. on and so forth. This is a whole rat's nest of uh, of effects that I can only begin to imagine. Yeah, it was a, it was truly a public health um, issue, mm. uh, you know. And there were reformers who who tried to um, you know limit the growth of the city to allow for m more healthful conditions, um, but they they favored white or white passing or white presenting foreign born audiences at the expense of black residents in the city. So it's just, yeah, it, it's really quite complex, um, but how ideas of race sort of like play out uh, in space. And, and I think that, you know, this is just one case study, um, but I hope that the questions that I'm, I'm asking, you know, could be applied to other urban settings, um, potentially other artists, uh, other artists, to, you know, urban representations, two-dimensional representations of the urban environment. Is there a defining factor or quality of American urbanism that separates it from other forms of urbanism? This is this is a fascinating question. So I <laughs> really believe in thinking carefully about place mm -hmm. and place specificity. So I, I do think that there are attributes of American urbanism and American cities that are distinctive, but I Great. don't really believe in American exceptionalism. Right. Sure. So, so I can talk about what is, you know, unique here, but that's, I guess what's distinctive here, but I don't necessarily think that that means that it doesn't apply in other places, right. right around right. the world. Um, Got it. So I guess just like with that, with that caveat, I mean, I think one of the defining features of American urbanism is that it's actually like profoundly in many cases, quite anti-urban. 
So, for instance, um, the let's call it um, like the founding generation, if you will, um, of this country. You know, many many of those leaders uh, did not like cities. So George Washington and Thomas Jefferson were both profoundly like anti cities, mm-hmm. anti city folk. Um, they just, I guess you, another way to phrase it is like, they preferred to not be in cities. Um, they built themselves (laughs) like large, uh, houses and which sat, you know, amidst plantations where they enslaved hundreds of people. Um, Washington bought a farmhouse on the banks of the Potomac river and modified it in the late 18th century. Uh, this was Mount Vernon. He was not a fan of cities. This was 15 miles away from where Washington DC would be built. And that distance Uh, was very symbolic. It was, you know, a bucolic remove, um, from the city and, and Jefferson similarly, uh, constructed Monticello, uh, on the top of a hill near Charles, uh, Charlottesville. Um, not also not a fan of cities. You know, there are there are many other examples, too. For instance, um, the original plan for for Philadelphia, Philadelphia's um, the original core is a is a grid. Um, But this was envisioned by William Penn as like a green country town. Um, The grid and the development in Philadelphia was so dense that um, the kind of like the blocks, the city blocks ended up being like chopped up by smaller alleys and things. Um, But but originally there was this idea that, that there would be more greenery and uh, kind of around uh, a house um, in on a block in in Philly. So they, so that's kind of like one ideal um, when we think about the way that space is construed in this country that has had a lot of staying power. Um, so add to this the power that the grid has over the American imaginary. So. Not only is the grid the way a city like Philadelphia was settled, it was also used as a pattern of settler colonial land ownership Mm -hmm. that allowed for westward expansion that, of course, came at the expense of Native American uh, communities. So um, the land ordinance of 1785, for instance, established a a grid um, that would be the way in which the federal government government um, controlled land ownership uh, as the as it expanded westward and stole land progressively uh, from Native Americans. So this grid has this idea of infinite expansion, right? Um, it has like a module that can be extended when you seemingly mean grid, forever. When you refer to a grid, are you like um, like I, I imagine? Three by three lines that just keeps extending over and oh, over. Interesting. Yes, I. Um, I think it was like a two-dimensional. It's like a two-dimensional grid. Oh, okay. I yeah, see. yeah. But actually, I really like the way you're thinking in three dimensions because that's the way I think about it for my book project too. Okay. I think like just to answer your question about what's you know, core to American urbanism. So like the I think this idea of like a bucolic country retreat Mm. um, coming from examples like Mount Vernon, Monticello, super, super important. The grid and the way that that worked both in cities like Philadelphia and in expansion into um, Native American lands like the Northwest Territory and something like the land ordinance of 1785 that was like laying a grid across the land, Mm. um, a two-dimensional grid, like an imaginary two-dimensional grid across the land that like these, that would shape um, the dimensions of, what they what they called townships as six square miles wide, like just the the idea, the pro, like the promise of the grid that it could like be forever extended. I think is is very core to this country's history and the way that it continued to steal land, um, and then the ways that um, the federal government has supported individual home ownership um, throughout the history, like have led to this emphasis on the single family home. Uh, and of course, home ownership is, is an important way of um, generating intergenerational wealth in this country. Um, but it has, the federal government has supported individual home ownership for white Americans mm-hmm. um, specifically, and um, has also 
supported highways and dependence on the automobile. And so I think that these factors have all ended up with a country that has, again, um, you know, held up an ideal of single family homeownership um, and a dependency on a, on a car mm. uh, that has profoundly shaped our urban environments. So I almost like have answered your question by talking not about cities, but like about <laughs> other kinds of spaces. Um, but they go hand in hand, I think. Right. right? Um, and so I could, you know, I could elaborate uh, on those if, if you want. Um, Do you see, I guess, the founding fathers like version of how to plan out space mm-hmm. still evident today? Mm-hmm. Or is it because we seem we've definitely shifted towards cities. Um, but mm-hmm. I guess now the new move is to suburbs and then now the new move is to move out in the country and have like your modernized ranch homes. Um, at least that's what it is in Texas. <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean there are there are certain um, like boundary lines and divisions um, in the country that that are still on a grid, right? There are mm-hmm. still like county county systems in certain states that function on grids. Grid doesn't necessarily mean urban, but mm-hmm. it's often used in urban contexts um, to like lay out streets. So I guess I don't want to confuse things. I just um, was. Um, trying to say that uh, there's there is a sense of like infinite um, extension to the grid that I think you know really um, supported an idea of expansion mm-hmm. in this country's early history that was problematic for many communities um, who were non-white and the grid doesn't necessarily have to uh, mean that, right? The grid is used in like a variety of contexts around the world for okay. organizing okay. space. Um, but I think that it was particularly powerful in the United States as a way of organizing land. I think I wrapped that it up. Sense? Yeah, I think I, I, think I wrapped so. it up too tightly with American urbanism, forgetting that this is a, a basic concept used for planning around the world. In your bio, it says that you're interested in which, in quote, which images mediate ideas of place and space in order to ask whose experiences they fortify and whose they emit, uh, end quote. Can you unpack the statement? You kind of did earlier, but let's open that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm interested in how, right, we can zoom out from the, from the book project. I'm interested in how images picture certain people's experience of space and and leave others out. And and I'm interested in how that can shape our perceptions um, of whatever kind of place is being pictured, whether it's a city um, or it's an image of Monticello or mm-hmm. Mount Vernon. So um, for example, so this is particularly potent, I think, in art that claims to have some form of truth telling. Hmm. So in my book project, I look at the art of John Sloan uh, Sloan was a part of a group called the Ashcan School, which is known for its gritty urban realism. And Sloan and his peer artists worked for the pictorial press. So they, um, they were very practiced at like drawing incidents from urban life, like a fire that happened. You know, they would like record that by drawing so that it could go out in the, in the press, like in the newspaper. And so um, they, their art sort of had this claim to reportage or it like looked like it came from a reporter's hand and it had this, you know, kind of sketchy line and sketchy quality to it that looked like it, but just dashed off quickly, like as if they were on the site, you know, of the, of the incident. Okay. So it kind of has this claim to veracity or truth telling. Um, but, and it was often written about that way by early critics that this, uh, that their art portrayed everyday life in New York city from a sort of truthful or honest vantage point. So as I studied the urban setting that, that this artist um, that I've worked on, John Sloan, studied the setting that he was depicting in a handful of his paintings, I realized that uh, Sloan was only picturing certain people hmm. in the urban environment and leaving others out. So um, 
Specifically, he was continually picturing his white or white presenting neighbors as opposed to his black neighbors. And so I found that out by using census records and, and mapping uh, to look back at who might have lived in these spaces. Now, again, when we're dealing with history, we can never fully know right. what happened. And there's, there, can, there are like gaps in the archive. And, um, you know, we only have census records from the closest year although like he did live there then. Um, but you know, it's like we would have census records like every single second, you know? Right. <laughs> um, right. So like, that's just to say that like there, there could be, um, there could be gaps and errors. Um, but I, but I hope that my research, you know, is, is pushing towards something which, um, tells us that John Sloan's images, and I argue this in an article that's coming out this summer, but that John Sloan's images portray a whiter version, a racially whiter version of the city, um, than it would have actually been. Um, so this reminds us that even though they, it might look truthful, it might just look like an image of the city that had been, um, dashed off, just recording what was there. Mm -hmm. Um, actually images are quite constructed. Um, they're not neutral. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what I'm, one of the things I'm interested in when I ask questions as an art historian. It bolsters an image of a city in one way and then dampens it of another. Exactly. Image of city. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Now I want to talk about New York City because I've never been there. So <laughs> much of your research is interested in New York City. What about New York City, I guess, calls to you or is intriguing to you? Yeah, and I also I, I find New York fascinating, but I also want to emphasize that I, I truly think any environment is fascinating. And right. I hope that like the questions that uh, I've been discussing with you, um, you know, are showing the ways that we can more broadly ask about layers of history and environments. Sure. Um, yeah. But with that said, uh, and I, I'm excited to, to think more about Nashville as I, right, as I'm like yeah. a, new, a new, relatively <laughs> new Nashville resident. Um, but New York is is um, is fascinating because of its density and because of its diversity. Mm. Uh, the geography of Manhattan Island, in particular, provides a kind of bound on development that has enhanced its density over the centuries. Um, right, because it's like kind of a contained landmass, or like bounded by water, if you will. Um, and you know, just waves of immigration have made the city home to um, people from an extremely wide range of cultural backgrounds. In Queens, for instance, um, according to a recent National Geographic article, more than 300 languages are spoken on one street. Oh my God! In Queens, and so I'm no really way. just truly, <laughs> truly humbled by that city and its wow. magnitude and its layers of history. And that's not to say that that doesn't exist in other places. It's sure. just been a place where, um, you know, I had the opportunity to study and um, artistic culture is particularly quite rich there in the early 20th century and the city kind of emerges as a subject in American art at that time. So uh, it also became a really uh, fruitful setting in which to study this interaction between the representation of space on a two-dimensional canvas um, or a two-dimensional piece of paper, <laughs> if you right. will, uh, and how space was being manipulated, uh, like it, it physically mm. um, by policies in the city, like we talked about earlier. So it became like a fruitful place for that case study. And I think New York is so interesting because it's always reinventing itself. It's daring, you know. It's not static. Um, but it still kind of wears its past in unexpected ways or bears its past in unexpected ways, if you will. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting spot. Yeah, I, I, I think what you describe reminds me, not really, but kind of, of Austin. <laughs> it's the closest big city to me. Well, San Antonio is pretty big, but Austin, in a way, is modernizing and is developing at a rapid rate but you still see those like old buildings and then, mm -hmm. and then you see gentrification which is like old buildings but they're new mm -hmm. they're like both at the same time mm -hmm. we could probably talk about that too mm -hmm. um but yeah i always enjoy like the juxtaposition of the old and the new and then just seeing them coexist together that's again another thing i find very satisfying but um yeah i definitely have to go to new york city soon uh, at some point uh, I'm curious. One of my favorite artists is Martin Scorsese, the filmmaker, and he makes most of his movies in New York. Do you possibly in any shape or form seen any connections between him and your research? Oh, gosh. I'd have to think more about it. Um, <laughs> it's just what, a random what calls to you about those 
uh, films. Yeah, so like a lot of he's uh, I guess very much a New York romanticist, and his films typically they a lot of the I mean I'm thinking of Taxi Driver. It's his, probably one of his most famous uh-huh. films, and and the shots in Taxi Driver are often Travis, the protagonist, driving uh, through New York City in the '60s, I believe, is when it takes place. And you see these alleyways and these spaces of mm-hmm. like grim and dirtiness mm-hmm. and, 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 and multiplicity and so many different people, politicians and diversity and different spoken languages. And you really feel the air of New York City, the steam coming out of the... the, the that's the, so interesting. Yeah, yeah. And so his movies typically do that a lot. And so that's the closest I've gotten to going to New York City is through his films. I was just curious. Oh, no, that's... It sounds really interesting, and I think it, it sounds like it captures a lot mm-hmm. of what the experience might be like right. um, for someone being in New York in the 60s. Again, just the caveat that, you know, we can never fully know what another's experience is. So, sure. you, know, not, you know, not to say that I can put myself in the shoes of anyone who lived in New York in the past, um, but we can learn from it in certain ways, I, I think, and I hope. Um But you know what? It reminds me what you're saying about like seeing the air of New York Um, reminds me about a film uh, from the 1920s um, by Charles Sheeler and Paul Strand called Manhattan. And I would encourage you to check it out. Um, You know, it's not exactly like a drama. Uh, It's more um, still shots uh, of New York where you see, um, you know, you see some movement, um, right. but sort of um, kind of a compilation of, of shots of, of city views. And it's really, you know, revolutionary for its time. It kind of is a, a portrait of a city and um, it's kind of book, bookended um, as, as, the, as kind of a, a day, like the course of a day. But it's not quite that literal. So, yeah, check it out. And that reminds me of Andy Warhol's stills of the Empire State mm-hmm, Building. Mm-hmm. Is there something to be said mm-hmm. about his work in New York? In relation to what you're talking about? Yeah, I, I guess I would hope that we could ask the questions I'm asking about almost any period. Oh, right? sure, right. So that that's kind of how I would answer that. Um, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> what is city planning? I am, I'm not a city planner. I, I can do my best to sure. to explain, you know, how I think about city planning. Um, but I would love for a city planner to come on, right. you know, to join us and say, oh, you know, no, that's that's not... Um, what it is at all, but I think the practice of city city planning is, um, you know, planning where different elements of the city where that should where different components could be located, right? Like public amenities such as green spaces or plazas, circulation systems, transportation, uh, from pedestrian access to public transit to highways um, to zoning and thinking about what kinds of activity can be located where. Um, city planning, in my view, I think can envision or pull different levers of development in a town or a city or a region. So it can kind of limit or encourage certain kinds of growth over other kinds of growth, I yeah. think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why, do you, why is city planning important? There could be so many different answers to that question. When I think about that, I, I think about the idea of interdependency in a city uh, and access, access to certain resources and how different parts of a city relate to other parts of it. And so I, I think that city planning is important because it has the promise of allowing for more equi- equitable distribution of access and re- resources, perhaps. Um, however, I'm not sure that it's fully possible to uh, ever Plan, like truly plan a city. I think that mm-hmm. residents always bring their own actions and needs and wants and yeah. desires. I think it's it's almost like an impossibility, maybe, sure. to truly truly plan a city. That's uh, I would love for a city planner to get to get on here and be like, no, that's not right. <laughs> maybe, but yeah. I I think when we you know when we look at the history, we see so many examples of people making places their own, and I think that you know planners who allow for some kind of spontaneity in their designs. Um, may perhaps be the most successful. Hmm. There has to be room for chaos. I think so. That's, that's very interesting. I'm a chaos agent. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's, I've never really thought of that. Yeah. Hmm. I'm about to think about that now. Um, 
I actually, I, I don't know. I just, I want to ask you about this because I've also asked every person that I've met who's interested in, in city urban planning and architecture. Uh, what are your thoughts on new urbanism? Oh, interesting. Move? Yeah. Well, well, sort of the same thing. I mean, I just don't know, you know, how overplanned you can get. Well, in place. general, like what, what um, you think of it and your thoughts on it. Yeah. Do you well, like it? I Do think you? it's pretty all encompassing. Mm, um, okay. That's the thing. That's the thing about it. Okay. <laughs> um, but it can I think it is an inc- incredibly interesting uh, like movement that productively pushed conversations on urbanism. Mm. Um, and I enjoyed uh, a vacation or two to seaside Florida when I was growing <laughs> up. <laughs> um, and it's beautiful yeah. there. It's beautiful. But I, I guess I just, I am maybe a realist in how I ask questions and I just don't think that, like a a boutique like design is going to is going to be able to work sure. for like a more broad ranging like set of places um so i i guess i guess i would be in, i'm someone who might be more interested in uh flexible systems mm-hmm. as to po- as opposed to um something that is so hyper designed um but i i do think that um it has its moments and we can learn a lot from it yeah, I mean, God, I love Seaside a little too much. I don't know. We, we won't even vacation there, but then we'll go drive just to go look at it so I could photograph the city. I mean, it's just, in my eyes, it's like uh-huh. some, probably the most beautiful architecture I've witnessed. Uh-huh. So I, I don't know. It's it's a, probably an irrational thing where I just saw it once. Like, there you go. I, I love it. And that's it. It's very intuitive for me. And I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's it it's thoughtful. Um, I think it's super interesting too. And it is a very beautiful place. Um, but I guess I'm interested in, you know, what, what can we like learn from it? Right. Like what could be taken to a massive metropolis, like somewhere like LA, you know? Um, so I guess that's what I would say. It's a small town. So how can things work at different scales? You know, how can, how can city design work at different scales? I, I guess that's interesting. If we did do something like Seaside on a larger scale, I wonder if it'd lose its charm too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Possible. Now I'm going to zoom out because we've been talking dense things about a lot of stuff. And I want to just ask a pretty important, I think a pretty important question. Do you believe the humanities are not valued in modern academia as they once used to be? And is this a problem? I do think it's true that science is, seem to be getting more funding. Sure. Which is a an indicator of where value lies, right? One indicator. Um, yeah. So I I you know, I'm relatively new to academia. I guess I entered the my doctoral program in 2014. So, you know, I only have my my perspective. Um it does seem like they're not valued um perhaps as much as they once were, but I I think, you know, to, to our detriment, right? I think humanities are arguably just as important now as they ever were. And um, I think humanities help us understand each other better. They help us understand our world better. And I think we need that um, so very much now as we face so much division and so many existential crises. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when I, when I think about the humanities and um, their impact, you know, I think about how during the pandemic people turned to paintings by Edward Hopper to understand loneliness and dissolution in the city, Mm -hmm. right? But I think that, you know, these reactions sort of show us that elements of art and culture can help us cope and help us make sense of our current environment. Um, And I think that humanities have to be a part of of the way in which our society tackles major challenges um, facing it today, like climate change um, and racial divisions. Yeah, I I agree. my uh, religion professor from high school, uh, Dr. Laporte, he once told me, I'm going to try to remember, I don't want to screw it up because it's such a good phrase. He said, the stems help us stay alive. The humanities, I'm going to think about it. It's something along the lines of the humanities help us realize why we should be living something along those lines. So there's this element of the stems, you know, serving as a function to keep us, you know, functioning, you know, medicine, cars, computers, they, they, they take care of the practicalities of life. But at the end of the day, if you just have the practicalities, you kind of lose the soulful element of life itself. 
And so what's the point of having all these practicalities when you can't extract, I guess, as, as Thoreau would say, suck the marrow out of life. So that's what I would say about that. Mm-hmm. What artists have had the most influence on your understanding of art and architecture? Gosh, you know, it's, it's so hard to pick because I've been studying this for a while now. Uh, and I think that, you know, my job as a, as a professor is almost to, at least in my lectures, to explain why, you know, a, vari- a variety of things are influential. So I guess I'm trained to find interesting things in so many different forms of art. Um, so obviously I've spent a lot of time thinking about the artists that I cover in depth in my book project, John Sloan, Georgia O'Keeffe, and Aaron Douglas. Um, incidentally, there's some amazing murals by Aaron Douglas here in Nashville over at really? Fisk University. Okay. Um, so yeah, I would encourage you know anyone who's interested out. to check them out. Um, they're really special. And, um, but, you know, I think uh, a couple, couple different kinds of things I'll, I'll give you that have had a yeah. major impact on me. Um, you know, one is we talked a little bit about Jefferson's Monticello and um, that building and ar- architectural um, sorry, analyses of that building have very have have made a big impact on me. Um, Jefferson hid the dependencies that were used by enslaved populations at Monticello. He hid them out of view. He tucked them away. Mm. Um, and so thinking about the way that that building, um, you know, doesn't sort of portray, like portrays a particular image um, of that space and not everyone's realities of that space have, have profoundly shaped the way that I ask questions about constructed spaces. Um, so I would say like, Monticello from that particular point of analysis um, has been impactful for me. Um, and there I'm drawing on the work of architectural historians like Dell Upton, who have analyzed that space um, in depth. Uh, another work of art that I really enjoy teaching and thinking about is Jacob Lawrence's Migration series. So Jacob Lawrence was an artist to come out of the Harlem Renaissance, like Aaron Douglas, um, but he was working a little bit later. And he did this incredibly moving series of 60 panels that um, are now jointly split between the Museum of Modern Art, MoMA in New York, and the Phillips Collection in D.C. And those panels tell a story of the Great Migration. Um, Jacob Lawrence was born in New Jersey but raised in Harlem from the age of 13 on and had Southern roots. Um, he was the child of immigrants who, sorry, of migrants um, <laughs> who moved, who fled racial violence uh, together with millions of other African Americans from the rural South Um, to urban, more industrialized Midwest and Northeastern cities, Mm. Um, this mass relocation known as the Great Migration. And this series of panels that he did uh, tells this this narrative um, through a series of almost like vignettes. Um, He uses extensive text as the title of these paintings to, uh, to tell a little bit about what's pictured in that painting. So text is a big component of them. Um, so there are these descriptive titles, and he uses these bold, simple forms um, that really increase the power, the visual power of the stark realities that he was picturing. So I think um, that's a really interesting series to think with, and also to think about that series as representing a history that transpired at the same time as something like um, as something like the the realities that the Green Book was created for. So. Um, the need for resources that would tell black populations where they could be safe was so urgent that something like the Green Book um, was used. And to think about the migration and the ways in which people were moving across space at that time, given the stark realities and fears that um, they would have had as African-Americans in the States at that time is, I think, particularly powerful when we think about race and space and access um, and then there's a contemporary artist that comes to mind named Wendy Redstar. Wendy Redstar is Absaliga or Crow. And I have had the pleasure of hearing her give some wonderful artist talks um, that are on YouTube. So I would encourage you to check it out. Um, I really enjoy listening to her talk about her work. She in a variety of different ways in, in, in her projects, she uses historic images mm. um, and kind of recasts them. So in one project, 
she uses 19th century delegation photography mm. um, and literally annotates these old photographs from the 19th century with her own knowledge of Crow culture, as well as that that was recorded um, by, a, by a particular interpreter who visited her, um, the ancestral reservation, the Crow reservation, uh, at uh, closer um, to the time of the making of the images. So she has like a historical document that she uses to unpack these images um, of delegations of, of Crow people who went to, um, in this case, Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. to have conversations um, with representatives from the federal government. So it's just super interesting how she uses uh, these historical images, and then she literally annotates them um, by drawing on these images uh, and explaining like, the clothing and the hairstyles and the meaning um, behind variety of aspects of dress. Um, these details recover people's humanity in these old photographs that have been lost over years of colonization um, and systemic racism. And I think her work is super powerful in that way. There's a, an article um, on those images in a journal called Panorama, if you're interested in checking out more. Awesome. Yeah, I was looking up everything you're saying, and I mean, some of these are, I mean, Jacob Lawrence's work in particular is, it's definitely just, in, I mean, it's, it's engrossing. <laughs> Excuse me. And uh, Wendy Redstar as well. So thank you for those recommendations. Speaking of recommendations, do you have any book recommendations? I'd love to know what students at Vanderbilt are reading these days other than they're reading for class. Yeah, I think um, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but I'm, I, uh, yeah, I, I recently just finished uh, Braiding Sweetgrass. I don't know if you've heard of that Sweetgrass, book. Sweetgrass. Yeah. Um, it's called Braiding Sweetgrass. Braiding yeah, it's by Robin Wall Kemmerer, uh, who is a member of um, the Potawatomi Nation. And she draws from her perspective as both a scientist um, and a mother uh, and a woman and someone uh, who is indigenous. And she tells stories of what it's like to, um, to she tells stories about other living beings. Um, they can be plants like asters and goldenrod and sweet grass mm. and thinks about how the rest of the living world can teach us lessons and how part of a new ecological sort of like consciousness that we need to have in order to tackle climate change um, needs to come from acknowledging our relationship as humans to, to other parts of the living world. So it's just like an absolutely beautiful meditation um, on nature and indigenous knowledge of nature. It's really, really beautiful. I've added it to my reading list. Um, wonderful. And then I like some classics I have to mention um, for you, like Jane Jacobs, The Death and Life of Great American Cities from 1961. Ooh, sounds great. Um, I read that in college and it, it fundamentally changed the way uh, I thought about cities. So it's a critique of 1950s urban policy, arguing that modernist planners had overlooked the complexities of what was going on in neighborhoods. Um, so it's, it is, um, it's a super interesting perspective on, on cities. And so I'll just I'll just leave it there. It packs a punch. Um, okay. And also um, and a book from 1972, um, Robert Venturi, Stephen Eisenor, and Denise Scott Brown wrote this book called Learning from Las Vegas that really caused a stir. Um, when it was published, it was based on a studio. Uh, they, they taught in an architecture school. Uh, they were teaching at Yale at the time. And uh, they took a studio class of students to Vegas to learn from Vegas. Um, so Robert Venturi uh, and Denise Scott Brown were architects and city planners um, whose work I've studied, uh, and they were interested in vernacular forms of architecture. You know, we started this discussion with what counts as architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were really interested in what we might call like vernacular or everyday architecture that had not been as heralded by the academy. This is not, you know, Monticello. This is not, um, you know, ancient Rome, classical Greece. Um, they were interested in how Vegas communicates to its users and why people are interested in it, um, how people find their way in a place like Vegas mm-hmm. and how it speaks to its users. Um, it's quite it's quite meaningful, right? Like people, how they were interested in how, um, you know, visitors uh, or residents of, of Vegas were using that space. So uh, they study it in a variety of different ways and it really had a big impact, I think, on subsequent 
architecture and city planning as just a, as a, almost like a provocation, like, hey, let's look over here. Right. Um, <clears throat> it's very interesting because it would have came out around the same time uh, Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas came out. I wonder if there's any connection there of any sort. But uh, Good question. Yeah. <laughs> mm. What is the, uh, now I have to ask, because this sounds like a book that's going around on my reading list. What is the kind of premise of that? I mean, you kind of talked about it, but what, what is, what do we learn from Las Vegas? Oh my gosh. Oh, it's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think what it is, is it basically, it is a, um, it's a charge to, to think about how architecture communicates. Mm. Um, and there are sort of two, two main ways that they, um, that the authors sort of set out that buildings, operate and one is called one is called a duck and one is called a decorated shed and a duck is a building that announces its purpose sort of through its shape and its form so um famously there's a building um that houses uh, a store that sells i think like duck eggs um i've never like bought anything from it um and i've driven by it because it's like a famous building in architectural history but it's in the shape of a duck and it's on long island and and the shape of the building it looks like a duck from the outside a giant duck okay and it like communicates what's what that building is for i see so buildings that work in that way are called ducks and then buildings that they call decorated sheds have ornament like attached or like slapped on. So like, like a sign, right. That might like, or like ornament that like tells you what this building is about, what it's, what it's doing. Um, so they analyze Vegas, you know, kind of in this way and, and through a variety of other, of other ways, like mapping, they think a lot about, um, questions of density and signage. Um, take, check it out. Check that it out. sounds very interesting. Yeah. 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 My final question is, and it's the easiest of them all, what is art? No, that's the hardest. That's the hardest question. Again, with one of these impossible questions. Um, so I, I, it's so hard. As you know, I, I take a very, very wide, you know, um, generous definition of, of these things, as you, as you might know by now. <laughs> um, but I think that generally it's stuff people make that carries meaning. Um, for its beholders, and it's been defined in a variety of different ways throughout history. Some kind, some kind of artistic choice is involved, but the scale of that I think can vary widely depending on the type of project that it is. So, uh, as an art historian, I should flag that I, I fully embrace what has been called material culture. So this includes objects that might not necessarily have traditionally been called fine art. So in addition to thinking about painting and sculpture. Um, and prints, you know, photography and film. I am also interested in, uh, you know, gosh, what, like a um, a, ta- a table setting mm. and what and what that might tell us, right? Sure. There could be like a print of something on a plate, yeah, um, or a design on a plate, and that that might tell us something about makers, makers who maybe have not traditionally had access to um, more um, elite a- academies. So I think that you know, um, cracking, cracking open, um, the definition of art, uh, is, is one way I think that we can sort of begin to, um, expand histories that have traditionally been, uh, limited to, um, more white male producers. Awesome. So I guess I would just say like embracing this purality, uh, can kind of lead us to hopefully more equitable histories of art. And I, I guess I try to bring that through in my work and my classes. I agree. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Custer, for joining me today. It was it was awesome. I learned a lot, a lot of interesting and weird things and ultimately uh, rewarding. Thank you so much. Thank you all for joining me this week. If you're at all interested in what we talked about, Dr. Custer will be teaching a first-year writing seminar next year uh, titled Art, Race, and Urban Space. So it sounds like it's going to be talking about just the same things we talked about on this podcast. Next week, I'll be speaking with Ari Sasan. Yes, uh, we're switching things up a little bit. The man, the myth, and the legend who ran for student government president. For now, thank y'all for joining me, and I will see you next week. Mm-hmm.